0: If you have a Bible, could I invite you to uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. It's page 1039 in the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to continue our More Than a Comma series, which is exploring the life and story of Jesus as told by the doctor, not who, but Luke, uh, one of the four gospel writers. And the purpose of this series is to uh, listen again And to observe again and to discover again what Jesus said and did during his all too short life on earth. Why? Well, it's in an attempt to learn from and then model something of Jesus' life and teaching. Because as 21st century disciples, and I realize that that may be the vast majority of us. But as 21st century disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to walk as he walked And we are to become more like him in our attitude and character. And two weeks ago, Tim brilliantly took us through that dramatic incident on the lake. Whenever the disciples were convinced that they were going to drown. But then Jesus intervened. He calmed the storm. And he left the disciples not only relieved and incredibly grateful, But also asking a core life question. And this was Tim's third point. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And it's a question that gets asked again in chapter 9 as we're about to discover. And it's a question that has been asked for over 2,000 years. And it still is today. And it's why courses like Christianity Explored and Alpha and many others remain relatively popular in 2013. Courses which tackle head-on this question. Who is Jesus? See, people are still curious. People are still keen to know. People are still intrigued by Jesus. And hopefully as we continue this series, and I intend to continue it after Easter as we journey through Luke, that as we read the stories and keep reading the stories and reflecting on the words as Luke recalls them and records them, that we will find answers to this core life question. So, let's stand, as we often do here at Windsor, for the public reading of God's Word. And we'll start at verse 1, and we're going to go through to verse 17. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony or as a warning against them. So they set out and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John Who then is this? I hear so many things about. And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and they followed him and he welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so. Everyone sat down, taking the five loaves, the two fish, looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks, broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate. They were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Please take a seat. Whenever whenever Jesus first called his disciples back in in Luke chapter 5, he told them that from now on they were to stop fishing for fish and they were to start fishing for people. It was a slightly bizarre idea and proposal, but the disciples immediately got on board with the plan. They pulled their boats up onto the shore, it says. They left everything and they followed and since then, from chapters 5 right through to 8, Jesus has been modeling what it looks like to follow him and to fish for people. Via his speech, via his action, Jesus was broadcasting the good news of the kingdom of God. But now, here in chapter 9, it's their turn. It's over to them, not simply to listen or observe, but to go and speak. And act. Jesus wants his kingdom message to spread. To get out there. To be heard. And to be experienced by as many people as possible. And right from the beginning. He invited those who belong to him. To share in carrying out this mission and his ministry. And that is always the way it's been. We who belong to Jesus have been commissioned to go, to make disciples, and to preach the good news of the kingdom. And here in chapter 9, he sends out 12. Those who know the story, you will know that in chapter 10, he sends out 72. And you could you could, you could say that ever since... The number of Christians sent out on mission, on the mission of God, and we all are, has been expanding. Literally millions and millions of Christians have been speaking and demonstrating the good news of Jesus and proclaiming the arrival of Kingdom Hope for two millennia plus. Twelve. Seventy-two. All his disciples. And what I want to do is I want to highlight a few things from this initial sending of the twelve that are worth bearing in mind as we go, as we leave here in 20 minutes time, as we are sent into our worlds to make disciples, to preach the good news of the kingdom, I want to have a look at a few things that I believe are worth bearing in mind as we go. The first is this, that all ministry All Christian ministry, whether 1st century or 21st century, takes place in the context of delegated authority. You look at verse 1. Jesus gave them the power and authority. Verse 2. Jesus sent them. Verse 3. Jesus told them. These 12, the 72 in chapter 10, and each and every one of us has been given power and authority. To go and to reflect the ministry of Jesus in word and deed. We're not off doing this by ourselves. We're not off doing this for ourselves. We are stewards of the good news of the kingdom of God. We have been entrusted. Every single one of us who belong to Jesus have been entrusted with a message. We are stewards of the good news. And we are servants of Jesus. Stewards, servants. And that is an amazing privilege. But it's also an incredible responsibility. Delegated authority. You leave here tonight to go in the authority of Jesus. Secondly, we have been given this ministry of word and deed, as I I just mentioned there. The disciples were to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick according to verse 2 they were to speak and then they were to do they were to act they were to show compassion now some people have taken this specific instruction and decided that here is the blueprint here is the model for ministry for reaching our communities in our world And I, along with many others, think that we need to be careful about that particular conclusion. This preaching and healing tour was relatively unique. It was not something we read that the early church embraced per se. They certainly engaged with their communities and beyond in word and deed, in speech and in acts of compassion and service. But to insist that healing the sick is always necessary, it's always essential, it's always required is, I believe, taking things too far now I'm not for one minute suggesting that God can't and doesn't heal the sick today in dramatic ways not saying that God can God may act in a sovereign and miraculous display of power through us of course he can but as you read the Gospels and the stories of the early church and the rest of the New Testament, a broader picture emerges of Christians and of a church on mission, speaking or communicating God's word verbally, yes, and performing deeds of compassionate service. Does that include healing the sick? It may do. But it also includes visiting the sick. It includes acts of kindness, feeding the poor, befriending the lonely, etc., etc. The key to the disciples' activity was this combination of compassion and message, or of message and compassion. We serve people as well as preach to people, and these two things complement each other and must complement each other. It's not either, it's not or, it's both and. And although we and others at times overplay one against the other or we argue over which is more important or which is priority or which comes first, message or service, and I don't believe those are conversations that are particularly helpful, the key thing that I want us to take from this evening is that we have been empowered, we have been entrusted, we have been authorized to share and reflect the ministry and mission of Jesus in how in word in deed, in proclamation and demonstrations. Got to go together. That's what they were sent out to do. They were given authority to speak and to do. The third thing I want us to note is the importance of and the need to trust God as we share this ministry. You'll have noticed that the disciples, uh, keep calm and trust God, I know some of you are smiling. The disciples were told to travel late. Now what we need to remember is this was a short-term missions trip. It's really important to to, to realize this, because in verse 10, you read that when the apostles returned, they clearly weren't gone for that long. And so again, we can't read this and think, well, here's the model for each and every occasion and adventure that, for example, and some people have suggested that, for example, long term missionaries who are going to go to an area and live and minister should rack up with next to nothing and take it from there. That's not the point. The central issue or the bigger issue is trust. Traveling late meant that they needed to depend on God and look to God for provision and support. And there is a real sense that whenever we put ourselves out there, whenever we speak up, whenever we speak out, whenever we proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God, whether it's at university, at work, with our family, with our friends in school, we can feel vulnerable, we can feel exposed, we can feel late. But in that place and at those times, we learn to trust. And what we ultimately discover is that God is trustworthy. God will provide and God will support us as we go. Trust. Fourth thing, and this should come as no surprise. And Jewel's story makes this really clear. Rejection is possible. Not everyone is going to like or going to embrace you or your message or your ministry. You don't catch fish every time you go fishing. Jesus didn't enlist followers every time he said and did something. People rejected Jesus and his message. And they will reject us and ours or his to be more accurate. And Jesus prepared his disciples for this reality. It shouldn't surprise us that people don't always like what we say. Now it's really important that whatever we say, we say it in grace and truth. Or sorry, we say it in grace and love. How we communicate the good news is important. But even then, even if we speak it in grace and love, not everyone or sometimes not anyone will accept it. That's possible. It happened to Jesus It happened to his disciples, and it will happen to us. And if there is rejection on a short-term missions trip, the disciples were to move on to the next village. And as they left, they were to shake the dust from their feet as a kind of testimony or warning to that city. And maybe sometimes we do have to move on. And maybe sometimes we do have to leave certain situations and people for now. Others may take it up from here. Others may be the next link in the chain. But our input, our opportunity is gone. It's over. But as we walk away, there's surely got to be a sense of pain as we shake dust from our feet. Any warning that we leave has got to be with a heavy heart. So four things to note from this incident. Christian ministry takes place in the context of delegated authority. We go in Jesus' name. Our ministry is one of word and deed, proclamation, demonstration. Truth, trust is essential because sometimes it feels like we're travelling light. And rejection is always possible. Now, according to verse 6, the disciples went and did it. I suppose the issue is so must we. But then the scene changes. It moves to the corridors of political power. News is filtered through to Herod the Tetrarch about all that was going on. Up to now, Jesus has stayed off Herod's radar. But now that his disciples are out and about on mission, spreading his message, Herod sits up, takes notice. I don't want to make too much of this or read too much into it, but maybe if we were more vocal with the message, teaching and value of Jesus, we might find that more political leaders would take Jesus seriously back to Herod people were talking and Herod was becoming more and more confused some were saying John the Baptist is back others thought Elijah is back or another Old Testament prophet but then Herod had beheaded John so the question that's now exercising Herod's mind was this who is this who is this Who is Jesus? It's this basic yet central gospel question. Discover the answer as Peter does and expresses 11 verses later if you scan down and everything changes. Life will never be the same again. Now I've already mentioned that the disciples back in the boat, as Tim talked about two weeks ago, they asked the same question. Although I think it's fairly... uh, Fair to say that their reason for asking and their attitude in asking was probably quite different from Herod's. They were impressed with Jesus. They were in awe of Jesus. They were hungry to discover more about the one they had chosen to follow. But Herod, although he's curious, he probably had mixed motives in asking the question. I'm not sure you could describe Herod as an innocent inquirer. But whatever prompted the question and however it was asked, Herod is keen to discover more. And he was keen to discover more for himself. And so it says at the end of verse 9, he tries to see him. It's a really important phrase. He tries to see him. In other words, he doesn't want to leave it at second-hand reports and rumors. He wants to meet Jesus for himself. He wants to make up his own mind. And that level of curiosity is surely to be commended. But here's the sad thing. Whenever Herod finally gets round to meeting Jesus, and we read about that in Luke 23, what does he do? He asks him a bunch of questions and then he mocks and ridicules him. And that is tragic. It's tragic for Herod. But his starting point, his initial question was important. It remains important. And if you're here tonight and you're not exactly sure who Jesus is, then let me to ask you, or let me encourage you to keep asking this question. But here's the thing. Ask it in humility and with an open mind. And remember, and this is something we've often said, but questions are vital because they take us on a journey of discovery. And therefore, I hope and pray that you will keep asking this central gospel question until you meet Jesus for yourself and discover who he really is. And then what do you do? Not mock and ridicule him, but bow in submission and surrender before him. And if you want us to help you in that journey of discovering who Jesus is, then please speak to us afterwards. Now with that question still left hanging because it doesn't get answered here in Luke 9, as it still is left hanging here and in the corridors of power, Luke then tells us about an amazing event that happens near this town of Bethsaida. This event that is called the feeding of the 5,000, although it's more likely there were about 20,000 to the time you include women and children. It's an event that is retold in all four gospels. And I know you can come at it from a number of different angles. You can emphasize a number of different things, and many have done so down through the years. But I simply want to finish by saying something following on from their short-term missions trip. Because this incident, I believe, is connected, at least it's connected in Luke's mind. We maybe see it as a standalone thing, but I honestly believe that Luke wants to connect what just happened to this. See, the, the disciples returned, it says. And they reported back. And then they tried to get away for some downtime. Some much needed R&R. But there was a problem. Crowds of people have discovered where they've gone. And not only discovered where they've gone, but they've showed up. Thousands of them. And even though it was inconvenient, and even though it didn't really suit, and even though it wasn't part of the agenda for that day, what does Jesus do? He doesn't send them away. And he doesn't walk away. says... He welcomed them and he grabbed the opportunity to do two things, to speak and to serve, to say and to do, to proclaim and to demonstrate. Jesus had sent the disciples off to do it at the beginning of chapter nine. Now he's modeling it right before their eyes. But as the day draws to a close, the disciples sense another problem. It's time to eat. And therefore, it's time to wrap things up, the speaking, the doing. It's time to send the crowd, the vast crowd, home, or at least send them away to find food. But whenever they suggest that idea, Jesus shocks them with a stunning response. You give them something to eat. You, you give them something to eat. Now don't, don't rush past this this point. People are hungry. There's thousands of them here, Jesus. Jesus says, don't send them away. You feed them. Now with only five loaves and two fish between them and nowhere near enough cash to buy a carry out for 5,000 plus, How exactly is this going to work? And well, we all know the story. And as Luke tells us, he says that Jesus gets the disciples to sort the crowd out in the groups of 50. And then looking to heaven, Jesus gives thanks. He breaks up the fish and bread and he hands it to his disciples who distribute it to the 100 plus groups. Somehow, and God knows how, there's enough food, not only to feed everyone, but as the text says, to satisfy every single person. And then the disciples pick up 12 basketfuls. Where the basket came, baskets came from is anyone's guess. 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. Now Luke doesn't offer any details or info regarding how the multiplication happened or worked. He just stresses the provision. He doesn't tell us anything about the crowd's response, which must have been priceless. Luke, unlike John, never mentions the little boy who offered his lunch. And so clearly for Luke, there's another reason for drawing attention to this incident. And maybe for Luke... It's him personally, and it's the other disciples who learned a massive lesson that day, and it's this, and as I say, it follows on from their short-term missions trip. They can accomplish incredible things, things they never dreamed were possible. Why? Through their association with and connection to Jesus, and here's the point, so can we by ourselves, left to ourselves, we don't see how we can do it, how we can feed this vast crowd, how we can do that, whatever that happens to be, minister, serve, witness, feed. But the presence of Jesus in our lives changes the equation of what is possible. That day, in a remote place, surrounded by people, surrounded by real need, the disciples discovered that they can do all things necessary for ministry. Why and how? Through Jesus who enables them. Jesus is the miracle worker. Jesus makes the impossible possible. But what does he do? He invites us to do what he tells us to do. And then, to watch in amazement as he provides through us. You see... The ministry of the church, our ministry, involves a call to minister through him and for him. We bring what we have. We get people into groups of 50. We share and we distribute whatever Jesus has given us. We pick up the pieces. And throughout all of this, we watch in wide-eyed wonder as Jesus miraculously transforms and satisfies human lives. Never limit What Jesus can do with you and through you. And as Jesus would say on another occasion, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will even do greater things than these. And so as we walk out those doors, we go with authority. We go with delegated authority because Jesus empowers us. Jesus sends us. And we go with the ability to accomplish incredible things. Why? Because of Jesus and for Jesus. And as we do, we have this incredible opportunity to help people find answers to the core gospel question. Who is Jesus? It's over to us. It's over to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we read about the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, how he sent the 12, sent the 72, and we recognize the great commission that every single one of us who claim to live in God and are to walk as Christ walked, have been told to go. Go into all the world. Go to all people groups. Make disciples and preach the good news of the kingdom. God, thank you that we don't go on our own strength, but we go because we've been empowered by you and sent by you. To go and reflect the ministry of Jesus in word and deed through what we say and through what we do. And God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you, even though at times it feels like we're traveling late. And God, we recognize that rejection is always possible. And people won't always like what we say or what we do. But God, I thank you for your example in Jesus. And so may we... Leave here and go fish. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.